Caitlin, when you go home to your parents and look in the fridge or the pantry, is there a food you absolutely 100% know will be there? Blue cheese dressing. My parents are like evangelistic about blue cheese dressing. What about you? Miracle Whip. (laughs) There is always multiple containers of Miracle Whip in my parents' fridge. Remind me, that's not what you would put on a piece of pie. That's like uh, (laughs) another whitish. That would be so gross. It's like some manufactured replacement for mayonnaise. All through my childhood, I swore I hated mayonnaise. Then in my 20s, I went to Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Someone made me like, just try your French fries with mayonnaise. I bet it was like fancy mayonnaise too. That's the thing. It was real mayonnaise and it was like a revelation. You just spent the rest of your trip in Amsterdam like eating mayonnaise. But it like dawned on me that all my life I thought Miracle Whip was mayonnaise. So the lesson kids is that sometimes the things that we think are the real thing are just cheap replacements. Yeah. (laughs) From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women trying to navigate faith and doubt in New York City. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. So obviously we've all changed our minds about plenty of things since we were kids. Yeah, if you were still like, Mom, I hate mayonnaise, I would feel like maybe you had regressed a little bit. I'm glad that your taste buds have matured as with expanded everything else in life as adults. Well, this is a show about faith, among other things. And I would say... My faith is probably one of the things that's changed the most profoundly since I was a child. Same. Like, when I was a child, I was actually afraid. Well, one, I was afraid of the rapture all the time, that it would happen. yes. And I would come into a room and my family would be gone and I was going to be left behind. Yeah. And I was afraid he'd come before I ever got to have sex. (laughs) Girl, every evangelical (laughs) kid secretly had that fear oh yeah (laughs) needless to say these are not the faith questions that keep us up at night anymore a bible verse comes to mind when i was a child i thought like a child and then when i became an adult i put away childish things yeah i also think about paul's passage about us seeing through a mirror darkly that we know in part and we are in fact always realizing that we know in part and that there's more and more to discover about life with God. So as a kid, I maybe only saw mayonnaise through the dark and distorting mirror of Miracle Whip. Yes. And as you've gotten older, (laughs) you see the bright light of real mayonnaise. (laughs) But would you say that there's a specific aspect of your faith that has changed the most since you were a child. Oh man. It's hard to think of a part of my faith that 
hasn't changed. I'm not sure my childhood self would recognize a lot of my faith today other than like, I still really love Jesus. Mm -hmm. But I guess one change that's maybe easier to talk about because it's visible is my shift from sort of a low church evangelical approach to worship to a high church liturgical approach. Mm -hmm. It really started when I was living in Orlando. And at this point in my career, I'd been involved in working for evangelical Christian organizations from all of my career. Mm -hmm. I just knew too much about all of those inner workings of how church came together. And I was getting cynical about it. Mm -hmm. And I was just, I was tired and Mm -hmm. I was tired of going to church every week and thinking about what I thought about all week at work. That has to be a casualty of being a quote unquote professional Christian. Yes. That it's really hard to maintain a personal spirituality or devotion without analyzing the content as it relates to like trends in the church. Exactly. I do think that that is a job hazard. Yeah. When you're editing articles about church all week, it's hard not to go into church and edit church and just be sort of critiquing it the whole time. I cannot not analyze sermons. I know. And I feel bad about it because I'm like, Caitlin, this is not what this is about. (laughs) This is not about rhetorical (laughs) effectiveness, but I cannot analyze. And I think that's a problem. Same. But I had a friend who moved to Orlando and started attending an Episcopal church and invited me. And I was like, wow, I've, that would be cool. I'd always kind of wanted to experience that. And I just fell in love with it. And I think Mm -hmm. a huge part of why I fell in love with it was it was so different Mm -hmm. than the work that I was doing all week, than my experiences, than, than my critical mind had been trained to think about and be critical of. And this Mm -hmm. was like these traditions, walking down the aisle with the incense, the, Mm -hmm. the way they did communion, all of these things were unfamiliar to me. Mm -hmm. And so it put me in this new place of like, I'm just worshiping again. Mm -hmm. And they were old, like ancient rituals, you know? And I felt like everything that I was working on all of the time was also new. It was like, here's the newest philosophy of how to approach church. Mm -hmm. Here's the newest way of bringing people in. And it was like, nope, this has just been the way it's done. Who am I to come in and critique it you know like Mm -hmm. I don't I don't have to play that role here the emphasis on a lead pastor is Mm -hmm. sidelined and as someone who is concerned about celebrity Christian leaders Mm -hmm. I think that's been one of the attractions to a liturgical space what really drew me in the beginning to a high church tradition was the actual church service the taking communion every single week became like such an important ritual for me Mm -hmm. as I got more involved and became more knowledgeable about sort of the history of more mainline traditions. Like I also began to find such a rich history of activism. And that was sort of my next sort of step into a liturgical tradition was feeling like, like it was connecting with that social justice side of my faith that I, that was so important to me and that I hadn't always been able to find in the ways that I longed to in some more like non-denom seeker sensitive churches. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've sort of made the same move. Similar. Yeah. So at the end of college, I studied abroad for a semester at the University of Oxford. And it was there that I started going to an Anglican church, which is fitting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think like you, it was like, this is strange to me. I've never seen Mm -hmm. church 
done this way. I wasn't entirely sure what to make of it, but when I returned from that semester, I started attending an Episcopal church in the Chicago suburbs where I knew the priest and his family. And I had some I had some questions about why we do what we do. I think how that church saved my faith in that time was that I could sink into the liturgy every Sunday, not knowing entirely sure what I believed about every aspect of Christian faith, Mm -hmm. but I could kind of lean on this tradition that had been there for hundreds of years and also lean on the community of faith of people gathered. And so as cliched as it might be, I found that there was a space for there to be this robust faith while making space for mystery and Mm -hmm. doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so since then, I've never looked back. I've been in either, you know, Episcopal or Anglican churches my entire adult life. I don't anticipate leaving. I think probably the biggest change in my own Christian faith, which feels as strong as ever, Mm -hmm. is still the sense that I don't have to have everything figured out. Yep. God can handle questions and doubts. The more that you think you know, the more you realize you don't know. That through a mere darkly thing again. Yes. And you can know all the right answers as a Christian and be impoverished in love. Mm -hmm. There has to be more to Christian faith than knowing all the right answers. There are all of these debates raging out there in Christianity. (laughs) I've noticed. (laughs) Yes. And they're not new. I mean, they're really Mm -hmm. just regurgitated debates that have been happening since Christianity started. And I think for me, realizing that and realizing I'm not going to be the one that comes along and solves them Mm. or my generation isn't going to be. And so that's not where my faith is rooted. Like that's not the... Mm. the rock on which my faith is built is like knowing the answers or having to have a clarity on all of those debates. But Mm -hmm. coming back every week, having communion, saying the creeds and going, these Mm -hmm. are the things, these are the Mm -hmm. things that every week I'll just stand on. And Mm -hmm. yes, I'll engage in some of those debates. I'll let some others slide by, but I have to recognize that like, I'm not going to have all the answers to those things in this lifetime. So for us and for many of our peers, the high church expressions of faith, be it Episcopal or Anglican or Catholic or Orthodox, got to name all of them, those traditions have proved to be a really soft landing place, perhaps coming out of evangelicalism. But obviously, we also know a lot of people who didn't find that and have left the faith altogether. Yeah, actually, among millennials especially, we've seen this rise in the so-called nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, not women in habits. And these are people who say they are no longer or they're not affiliated with any religion. It's actually now a plurality of millennials that identify that way, which is a huge shift. What's a plurality? It's not a majority, so it's not more than half, but it is the largest single group. Mm, Okay. I've wondered that for a while. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you for your data knowledge. You know, I read this 
tweet <laughs> um, a few <laughs> days ago that was like, if you're in a relationship with someone, you have to be ready to attend a thousand funerals because people are always changing who they were. Like people are always in seasons. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it's an unfortunate way to approach people as if where they are right now is forever where they will be. Or even looking at myself in college and thinking where you were then, like, this is the best. This is where you would want to be your whole life. Obviously, there are lots of conversations right now about the nuns and deconversion narratives and mm -hmm. ex-evangelical mm -hmm. narratives, which, by the way, isn't necessarily not Christian. It's people who are no longer evangelical. But I'm dismayed by how a lot of or some, I should say, evangelical leaders frame deconversion and talk about mm -hmm. people who have left the faith. Like, speaking of tweets, <laughs> there was one going around within the last week or two from a pastor saying that for people who leave Christianity, if you dig into it, you realize it's because they wanted to have sex with someone they weren't supposed to. <laughs> That's just... <laughs> And I'm like, exactly. That's so simplistic and totally discounts the very complicated and heart-wrenching and intellectual reasons people have left Christianity. In addition to feeling sort of dismissive mm -hmm. and demeaning to those people, they also feel to me like an excuse. Like, oh, those people were never really Christians in the first place. They weren't true believers. Or it, the problem is with them. It couldn't right. possibly be Simply with be us something or we anyth did. anything that we do around, for example, exactly. how churches treat women, right. how treat churches talk about people in the LGBTQ community rampant sexual abuse <laughs> it, you know it couldn't have anything to do with like the gross moral failings of celebrity christian leaders you just can't keep it in your pants but when you're ready to come back to us let us know mm -hmm. i call bullcrap caitlin calls bullcrap this is why i was so excited to talk to our guest today about her spiritual journey because i knew she would be open and willing to go there Audrey Assad is a singer-songwriter perhaps best known for her renditions of traditional hymns. And more recently, she's been very open about her no longer being a practicing Christian. I tried psilocybin in January of 2019 and had the most profound encounter with whatever is benevolent in this universe and felt that that experience really could not be denied. I felt it and it felt like it healed some things for me. Our conversation with Audrey is coming right up after we give a shout out to the organization that makes Saved by the City possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Check out the newsletters, the opinion pieces from all different perspectives. There's something for everyone. For the best in global religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And don't be shy about contacting us. We love to hear from you. We love your emails, your tweets, your five-star reviews. Your Instagram stories. Thanks, Ash. Give us a shout at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com or tweet us using the hashtag SavedByTheCity. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. 
in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Well, we're so thrilled today to have Audrey Assad, who is both an amazing singer-songwriter and musician and author, and she's also someone who Caitlin and I have had some drinks on a rooftop in New York with. <laughs> and <laughs> unfortunately, today we are neither having drinks nor on a rooftop in New York, but it is great to get a chance to talk to you again, Audrey. Same. It's really good to hear both your voices been a minute. Yeah. It's been a minute and it's also been a journey for you since we last <laughs> talked. You've talked about kind of leaving Christianity or at least practicing Christianity and we're going to get to that but to start I think it will be helpful for everyone to hear a little bit about your own background, your faith background, yeah. your Christian background, sort of the tradition that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about about that part of your life. Sure. I Grew up in New Jersey, which is a very Catholic place, very Catholic mm-hmm. town, but I was raised in an actually uh, super anti-Catholic tradition. The denomination was called Plymouth Brethren, and I was part mm-hmm. of that until I was 19. And for people who haven't heard of that, it's a pretty fundamentalist group, um, a smaller sect of evangelicalism that split mm-hmm. off the Church of Ireland in 1835. And people may know, um, they haven't heard of Plymouth Brethren, they might know about what we're most famous for, which is coming up with the pre-tribulational rapture theory. So you're Uh welcome, everyone. The Left Behind books were (laughs) not, they wouldn't have happened if it weren't for us. So I grew up in a kind of a hell-focused culture. And Mm. we were also sort of different than regular evangelical Christian culture in that we had a lot of strict rules for women. Women weren't allowed to speak about spiritual matters out loud in front of males without their heads covered. And in church, not allowed to read scripture out loud, speak out loud, say anything. We were just taught early on, like our role was silence. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I was raised in the church was in a silent kind of muted space of just listening to the elders in my community talk about the end times and and hell and atonement. And it was, it was a very interesting way to grow up, uh, to say the least. I didn't Mm. know that. Mm -hmm. And then when did you make the move, the shift to Catholicism? It was in 2007 after I kind of church hopped backwards in history. And so I was at a Baptist church for a while and then a Presbyterian church for a while working on staff at both of those. And then I became a Catholic in 2007 um, as an adult. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of people think of Catholicism as backwards and sort of prohibitive. And for me, it was a liberation in a lot of ways. It was another step away from fundamentalism and into a more holistic way of looking at things. And, mm-hmm. you know, it sounds so silly now maybe, but you could like drink and smoke cigarettes and still be a faithful member of the community. <laughs> and I was like, this is so wild. And you can dance and mm. listen to secular music and you, you know, that's not frowned upon. And it, it felt a little more like I could be living in the world. Mm-hmm. And so you were in the Catholic tradition for quite a while. Yeah, I guess it, it would really technically, I haven't in any formal way exited it. I don't think there is a process for that of like formal Mm -hmm. disconnection, but I stopped practicing Catholicism about four years ago. And 
what were some of the turning points maybe along the way or points in time when you started to feel like Mm -hmm. this doesn't feel tenable or it doesn't feel like something I can authentically practice or it doesn't speak to me in the way that it did? Yeah, I mean, it was a mix of ideas shifting and then my body having a specific reaction to Hmm. uh, the practicing of religion. And so early on, I think in 2013, I... I watched a documentary on YouTube at the time called Hellbound, which was made by William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just interviewed a bunch of people everywhere on the spectrum from Westboro Baptist to Satanists, including, you know, some Orthodox priest and Peter Kraft, who's a Catholic philosopher. There were all kinds of different people interviewed about what their opinions were about hell. Mark Driscoll was in it Mm -hmm. and like uh, Brian McLaren, you know, just all these different, Mm -hmm. all these different voices inside Christianity and outside of it. And it was the first time I ever really asked myself, is hell really real? Do I really believe in that? You know, and Mm -hmm. I had always had that question, but I had never allowed myself to explore it. And once I did, I think I tugged on the thread of hell Mm -hmm. and then it led to the thread of atonement and atonement theory. And I started researching that. And and as I did that, it all started sort of falling away for me, but I kept going because I valued, uh, my community a lot. And my framework, um, was not something that I wanted to reject. It just sort of started unraveling before my eyes as I Mm. pulled on these different threads. And then around 2016 started having panic attacks every time I walked into a church building. So I was like, hmm, I think I need to figure out why that's happening, you know? Hmm. And I had to cancel a tour. So I did, because I obviously played primarily in churches at that time, because I was having symptoms like these weird physical tics in my hands and I couldn't really do my job in health. And so I stopped going to mass and then anxiety attacks calmed down. So in that season, I went to trauma therapy, did a lot of work around my upbringing, around Mm -hmm. some of my experiences inside the church as a child, as an adolescent, especially in the environment I was raised in. And so that was when I think I realized I needed to at least explore the idea that even if I did the unthinkable, which is jump ship, if there was a loving God, that it would be okay. And Mm -hmm. I did. And my body just wouldn't allow it anymore. And it was kind of like, okay, well, I don't know where I'll be in 20 years, but I definitely know that where I came from is not feeling like home anymore. I almost felt compelled to strike out on my own into the wilderness a little bit. And as promised by the mystics, I've found like lots of streams of water out here. Mm. In an Instagram post, you said you're no longer practicing Christian nor practicing Catholic, but you also said that you found God again after a couple years of nihilism. Mm -hmm. And you wrote, and I love this, whatever or whoever God is, I am still in love. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that journey of finding God outside of organized Christianity and how, how is your understanding of God different now than what you were brought up to believe as a Christian? I mean, the quickest way to explain how I felt like I found God outside the institution, well, there's two, there's two answers. There's people, and then there's mm-hmm. psychedelics, which I started using or communing with is what it feels like more than using. But that was the, the event. My first mm-hmm. uh, psilocybin trip was, was the event that sort of shook me out of the nihilist fog I was living in, which was a bummer, mm-hmm. by the way. I hated it. <laughs> I didn't like it there, but I was exploring these thoughts. What if nothing means anything? 
what if yeah. love isn't really real? It's just an invented term for a biological hardwiring. You know, I was sitting like laying awake at night thinking about these things, breastfeeding an infant. It was kind of like, mm. it was good. It was a dark night of the soul for sure, but I needed to explore those questions to their logical ends to feel what that felt like. And it turned out a life with no meaning and no sense of purpose, no sense of transcendence was, I mean, a bummer is an understatement. It was depressing. It was, uh, it felt like a dead end emotionally, mm-hmm. spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I tried psilocybin in January of 2019 and had the most profound encounter with whatever is benevolent in this universe and felt that that experience really could, A, could not be denied. I couldn't deny the experience I had had. And mm-hmm. with, you know, what, what felt like the love of the divine, whatever that is. I, I don't really have a lot of beliefs around that, but mm-hmm. I, I felt it and it, it felt like it healed some things for me. And that was sort of the, the turning point for me um, away from, yeah, the sort of the nihilism I had adopted. And then, yeah, I'm meeting people outside the church who are from different traditions who are so wise and so healing and their presence mm-hmm. is such a gift to the world you know, I started meeting more and more people like that as I ventured outside the walls of where I had been brought up. And it, it really just, it was helpful. I think I, I realized that God is everywhere in every person. And mm. I was not brought up to believe that. So that right. was that was a new, it was a shift. I am really curious, like the ideas or concepts that you had around who God is. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the of what you sort of shed in the yeah. of, of your beliefs about who God is. <laughs> oh, and sure. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, even as a Catholic, I was still carrying with me a lot of the ideas of God I was handed as a child. Cause it's hard to unlearn those mm-hmm. stories. I intellectually rejected a lot of it, but it was still sort of hardwired into my mm-hmm. body, into my tissues. It sort of felt like, you know, so I had this sort of conception of God that God was a wrathful, jealous God who poured out his anger and his masculine sort of wrath mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. on Jesus so that so that he didn't have to do it on us because we deserved that and that was definitely how i was raised to think of god and then that god was watching everything i was doing and you know nothing escapes the all seeing eye of god it was just like a very like evil santa claus i don't know like it was mm-hmm. kind of terrifying and i don't <laughs> i intellectually rejected that later on but i don't think i like really mm-hmm. let it go until more recently. Mm-hmm. That'd be my primary picture. You know, I also knew that God was, he was preached to me as being merciful, but that mercy was, came at the cost of him killing his child in a public, cruel, you know, humiliating um, death that was held up as the sort of paragon of mercy. And honestly, it never sat that well with me, but I, mm-hmm. I believed mm-hmm. that I believed that the cross was less, Jesus being put to death by the institution of the day and more the plan of God from the beginning to make sure that I didn't have to go to hell. So I think I was just scared of that God, no matter how merciful he was presented to me as being, because I just Mm. couldn't make sense out of how God could be safe to approach. It really strikes me in your story, Audrey, that there was both an intellectual dimension of change or thinking about concepts differently over time, but there was also this physical, intuitive, embodied change Mm -hmm. that had to happen as well. 
what helped you work through not just the intellectual concepts from Christianity that were damaging for you, but also kind of the physical, intuitive, mm-hmm. embodied work that you that you had to do to get out of some of those really primary frameworks? I love that question. Um, and it's, you know, a multifaceted answer in the sense that it's all under the umbrella of embodiment, but mm-hmm. I've definitely done a, a ton of work physically to discharge that energy from like EMDR trauma therapy, which definitely helped to dancing mm. home alone. Like I do that quite a bit because I feel like I need to move stories out and make space for the next, you know, and the new and, um, dancing helps me do that. And it feels like Oracle work sometimes for me. I have a massage therapist I go to who I have deep spiritual experiences with because Mm -hmm. when she touches on spots and I feel and see things arise, I can process them with her. It's kind of a, it's a multifaceted approach, but I think the more I get into my body and just allow those things to come up and allow, and I sit with them in compassion and integrate them into myself instead of rejecting or Mm -hmm. pressing, then, you know, the stories are changing very slowly. But I also think psychedelics have played a role because Mm -hmm. they do offer a doorway into your perception, into your own psyche that is not impossible to achieve without them, but is certainly given a certain ease, um, a turbo boost, I guess, um, into your own mind and body in that way. So I've, in combination, all of those things have been helpful to me in that department. Well, I'm glad you returned to the mushrooms because we definitely (laughs) wanted to ask a little bit more about your experience with those. Talk a little bit about how you became open to trying that. Mm -hmm. And were you scared? I was terrified. I'll start there. But I, I became open to it because I'm still suffering. I'm suffering with PTSD Mm -hmm. symptoms. I'm suffering from anxiety. I'm suffering from a sense of disconnection and disembodiment. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm doing all this trauma therapy work and I'm not feeling the relief that I'd like to be feeling. So I think this would help me, you know? So it became, I think I hit a point where for me, there was a threshold of like the fear just gave way under the curiosity and the desire for something to work. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. they're not a silver bullet. They don't cure everything, but I knew that they could help. They were studied and shown to help with the things I was dealing with, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. at very high rates of success. And so I thought, well, like the risk of being really scared just doesn't feel like it outweighs uh, what the benefits could be. And Mm -hmm. I did my research. I researched it for at least nine to 10 months before I tried it. Cause that's just how I am about things. Um, and why I think I was felt so confident going in is that I'd really done my work on knowing mm-hmm. what to try, how much and in what kind of environment to be. But I was also given the gift in this life of being guided by like a friend of mine who yeah. had done a, a significant amount of work with them. He, I've heard having a guide mm-hmm. is really critical. I wouldn't, it's not even really a guide as much as a sitter, someone to be there to mm-hmm. remind you that you're safe mm-hmm. and that you chose mm-hmm. this and that it's okay and just lean in and say yes because that's the answer with mushrooms is always say yes to what's coming up or else it becomes scarier and more mm. terrifying until you submit and just lean in. And what I found was that every time something scary did happen, if I leaned into it, it would sort of dissipate and show me the lesson underneath. Mm-hmm. But if I resisted which there's a life lesson here. If I resisted (laughs) it, you know, it became 
even more daunting and mm-hmm. terrifying than it really had to be. And that, that taught me a way to live, not just in the experience, but afterwards. It really strikes me that you have done so much work between therapy and psychedelics and, you know, massage and just the research. Like you've put a lot of work into your own healing, immersed in the world that I'm in, reading what I read. There's all these people sort of hand wringing about the exodus from the church, about ex-evangelicals, about nuns. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of underlying narrative of, of, oh, those people chose the easy way out. Yeah. Um, Christianity demanded too much of them. They just wanted to (laughs) live without the moral code or the sacrifice. And I'm like, this was not an easy decision for you. And it hasn't been for anybody I know who took, who's gone that way, or even in my own life, deconstructing the work that Caitlin and I have talked about in other episodes it's heart-wrenching. And in another post, um, you said when you lost complete touch with that belief, the Christian story that you staked your life on, it uprooted your whole life, your sense of identity, your work. Tell us a little bit about that grieving process and the ways you've worked through, Mm. you know, even just maybe with friends or with other Christian community that you had before. Like, Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that. Well, there's a unique type of pain and grief that arises when you start realizing that if you're showing up as your authentic whole self, you are losing connection because you're actually being upfront and authentic and honest and fully there. And that was what became intolerable for me. I realized at some point that I couldn't be authentically and fully myself and be inside the institution. It just wasn't happening. And I wanted to, but it wasn't happening. And then as I leaned into that and said yes to what I knew yeah, I lost connections. I lost a sense of belonging mm-hmm. in, in, in many ways. And that was definitely a grieving process, but also one of the most beautiful gifts I've ever been given because I began to get the opportunity to realize that belonging is something that no other person decides for me and that I actually carry it within me everywhere that I walk. But yeah, it's not an easy choice to leave a church, even if you don't believe the same things anymore because your whole life is built around that, that body of people. I think it is really sad that people who are hand-wringing, as you said, can't really see the suffering of those people with mm-hmm. compassion and with um, like letting go of, what's, of the narrative they have for a second about why they're leaving or the fact that they're leaving is so tragic. And just going like, I really wonder what they're going through mm-hmm. and I wish I could be present to them in that. That feels like belonging to me and, and it is sort of... It's difficult to find for me inside the places I was brought up in. This might sound like an odd question, but when you think back to Audrey of 2007 or 2013, <laughs> like, how do you think of your past self? I don't think there was any other way for me. I mean, I was raised where I was raised and born to the people I was born to. And for whatever reason, that's my story. And I accept it. I sort of think that I actually look back at this whole trajectory and I'm still in the middle of it. You know, I'm still in the middle Mm -hmm. of life. It's not over. I love how I've lived. I love how Mm. faithfully I tried. Mm. I love how I tried to do the right thing all the time. I love that about myself. I don't want to change that. Mm -hmm. I also think that as I've evolved and woken up, 
I've learned that trying hard and doing the right thing all the time can be a taskmaster and a sort of rigorous, almost like my inner critic was actually collaborating with the religious mm -hmm. institution to put me under the thumb of mm -hmm. an impossible standard. Well, I love that I tried because I love what I want. I love what I wanted, which was to be in right alignment with what is good. And mm -hmm. I still want that. And that hasn't changed at all, but I'm learning I'm waking up and growing and learning that perfection is not equal to that and that making mistakes is part of being a human being and yeah all of that matters and belongs in my story I don't uh I don't need to change that about myself but I I I just accept what happened and it's all part of what makes me the person I am like if one thing had been different I wouldn't be the be the me that I'm learning to love now so mm. you know it took me a minute to get there I've had my moments of <laughs> annoyance and anger and all of those things but yes mm -hmm. largely speaking I love every piece and every every cornerstone of the journey you know mm -hmm. I love that <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for I'm just gonna say it my what I think is the most fascinating conversation Aww. we've had on the podcast <laughs> really so far fun. I don't yes. know if we're allowed to say that but wow. we just I'm very honored by that so appreciate your yeah. authenticity your honesty how compellingly you articulate your own story mm -hmm. and it'd be great to have more conversations like this in person someday. I would love that. And I, I will so. let you know when I'm in New York next, which is not too far from now. So we'll oh, talk okay. about that. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Good. We'll have a rooftop chat for sure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, well, thank Audrey. Thank you so much, thank Audrey. You. Have a great afternoon. So one thing that struck me in our conversation with Audrey is just the loneliness that a lot of people experience when they leave the faith. Especially for people who have grown up in it or when so many of their relationships, community, even family, has been built within the church context. So when I think about my own friends who have either left evangelicalism or Christianity, I want to stay friends with them and to continue walking with them, recognizing life is long and that there needs to be a willingness on both sides to keep the conversation going and keep connecting despite differences. I want that too. I have some news. I love news. It's not breaking, but I am taking a break from podcasting for just a little bit to write a book. Yay. Are you going to tell us a little about the book? Well, it's about celebrities in the church. Mm -hmm. It's not a positive take <laughs> on celebrities in the church. I'll say that. Gosh, what a surprise. It's terrifying to write a book, but I think what I want to do is to identify a problem and that I think a lot of people recognize and point toward a solution. Mm -hmm. So no pressure. No, I hope that your writing goes well. And it does seem like a good time to take a break. It's summer. Yes, 
you're going to take a break as well. I am going to take a little bit of a break and then say by the city's going to go on the road. Oh, like really go on the road? What do you mean? I'm trying to get the budget for it. We'll see. <laughs> but we're going to try and talk to people in other cities. So look out, Los Angeles, London, Chicago. You definitely need to go to London to record a special episode. Yeah, I think so. And so when does your Say by the City summer road trip start? We'll be back in mid-July for our summer road trip series. In the meantime, I hope all of you listeners have really enjoyed our first season of the podcast. I hope you'll share it with your friends and family and loved ones and even people you don't like. It's fine (laughs) with us. We want to hear from you what you think worked, what didn't work, who should we talk to for season two. We are coming back for a season two in the fall. I'll be back and ready to go. We want to hear who we should talk to and what we should talk about. So if you have ideas for our next season, you can email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The executive producer is Jay Woodward. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham, and our consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. And this week, we had the special treat of getting to hear some music from Audrey Assad. We are Caitlin Beatty and Roxy Stone. Thanks, Thanks for listening. listening.